I find myself somewhat doubtful about speaking into the silence. A little bit louder, Kathy. I wonder if we're better off keeping the night silent. Still louder? You'd like it louder still? Partly that desire for silence is that out of seems so special here to have this kind of quiet. It's a little bit loud for me. I listen to myself and then I want to even get quieter. I don't know if that works. It's, uh, when I hear an echo, is this okay now? Okay. When I was being trained a little bit to be a Zen teacher, I guess, one of the little uh, teachings my, my teacher gave me, he said, maybe, I don't know why he said this to me, well, people, maybe because I'd come, I'd already done some Vipassana practice and maybe he knew what went on in Vipassana. He said, um, here in Zen, we don't speak to people in the meditation hall, in the Zendo. You go to a different room to, to give your Dharma talks called the Buddha Hall. So we don't speak to people in the Zendo when they're meditating. No guided meditations, for example. And the reason is that everyone's a Buddha. And what can you say to a Buddha? So you're all Buddhas sitting here. The other thing I learned in Zen, it's one of the teachings of Zen, is the teachings uh, to respect everything. And I remember once at the end of a seven-day retreat, um, we everyone had a teacup by their place. And at the end of the seven days, they came to collect the teacups. And there was a Zen uh, monk who was sitting the retreat. And before giving up his teacup, he bowed to it. And I was, you know, I'd never seen anyone bow to a teacup before kind of respect for everything. And one of the things to respect is certainly yourself, but amazingly enough also to respect um, what John calls the nonsense, to respect all the unusual ways your mind operates. Some of them are quite original Thank you, just bow to everything. So maybe we can have a talk that doesn't have too many words today. One of the ways of listening to a Dharma talk, there's many ways, it's a whole practice in itself, but one way to keep in mind is when you hear what's being taught is to listen and see where in my experience do I know this is already true. Someone says, you know, 
Buddhism. The point of Buddhism is to let go of your clinging. And your first thought is somehow your protest. You know, these Buddhists don't know about real life and we have to cling. And maybe it's okay for someone in the monastery. And this is not realistic. But rather than taking that stance, take the stance, where might it be true in your life that it's useful to let go of clinging? Where have you had that experience? You realize, oh yeah, that was useful, that one little time. And then you, but that as a reference point, maybe you have an entryway into the teaching, it's very different, and you find your way into it uh, in a more personal way rather than something that's abstract. So with these, uh, you know, 12 steps of transcendent, liberative, dependent origination, so it's such a transcendent title. <clears throat> you know, what can that have to do with my life? But you might kind of start with the idea, where is it already true in my life? Where is it true that becoming relaxed and tranquil supports <clears throat> happiness? Where is it already true that having some sense of well-being supports a settling of the mind, concentration? How is it true that I've, where I've managed to settle myself some and I could see more clearly what was going on? Now, this middle section, very, very crucial kind of inside middle sections of this <clears throat> 12 steps is to see things as they are, to become disenchanted. And then the third one, the topic of today, is um, <clears throat> it's usually translated into English as uh, dispassion, becoming dispassionate. But that sometimes doesn't work very well for some people. More of these party-pooping Buddhists. Why do they have this problem with passion? The word in Pali is viraga. Raga means lust. So if it's translated as passion, it's kind of like, you know, like the passion or the thirst for money or power. So a variety of things we use that word passion, but it's not really a good thing. It's painful to have like certain kinds of lust. It's kind of like raga means more like lust. But uh, raga also means um, a dye, a dye that you use to color cloth. And viraga, uh, uh, it's been said, also means, that means the fading of that color. So the fading away of color. So the, um, you know, sometimes, you know, if you're, you know, you see red, it means you're angry, right? It's, you have this color, rose-colored glasses, you see someone right there. So the, um, so the, f- the fading of something. So there's seeing, disenchantment, and the fading. Uh, we wake up from the dream, we wake up from our illusions. And in seeing that our illusions are not true, not they don't live up to, they're overrated, then we become disillusioned. I think the word disillusionment maybe is more welcoming than disenchantment. We're no longer in illusion about the value of things. And then, we can't expect 
just like that. Just because we have the wisdom to see this isn't really what it's cut out to be, this isn't really that important to be involved in or useful, it's overrated. We can't expect just to be let go and have the mind behave, you know, just like, okay, that's enough, okay, I'll give that up. I think it's a very mature thing to appreciate the power of the mind, the habits, habits the power of our habits, and appreciate that it's a slow process of beginning to not just on and off, but to fade away, to thin, thin out our attachments our, that we have, our clinging, our sufferings, our pains. And this slow, uh, weak, slow weakening of things and thinning out of things is this process of viraga. And it takes its time, and we have to give it its time to do that. So to see in such a way that we realize that what we've invested so much importance into in our lives, many of the things are overrated. And when we realize they're overrated, then uh, we begin to kind of loosen up on them, lighten up on them, give them up. And I'm sure, you know, this question of in your own life, where do you have this? I'm sure that if you look back over your lifetime, there are things that you were completely attached to, committed to, excited about, involved in, that later on in your life, like now, you might say, what was I thinking? You know, you become disillusioned. Or you no longer, maybe you're not disillusioned, but you no longer, I don't want to do that anymore. I had enough of that. Part of the word that, you know, disenchantment word, nibbida, it also means uh, to be tired of. And sometimes it's a, there's a wise ways of being tired, fed up, I'm enough of that. I know I've been on retreat, long retreat, where I've had amazingly long bouts of fantasy making. I think the longest stretch of, or I don't know if it's continuous, but for, for this purpose, I can say basically continuous bout of a fantasy I had on retreat was three days. Is that like a record for you? <laughs> Have you beat me? Have you? <laughs> and it had to do with designing helicopters. <laughs> And what's more amazing is that I don't know anything about the aerodynamics. <laughs> and I was really fed up, really tired of my fantasy. Enough already. So uh, I think it's a very mature grown-up thing to do, to see it clearly, to, to break through the illusions we live in, and then begin the process of lightening up on them, giving them up. Very important process. You've all probably gone through it in your way. But <clears throat> this kind of emphasis that there's illusions, there's clinging, and to let go, can lend itself to a certain kind of misunderstanding about this kind of practice. And the misunderstanding, misunderstanding sometimes is connected also to this teaching of not-self, people say no-self. And the two go together and it's like, I, you know, I'm supposed to just give up, give up. I'm not supposed to be anybody. You know, 
better if I didn't exist or something, or certainly better if no one noticed me. Or I'm not supposed to be anybody. I'm not supposed to be anybody. That's what John said, wasn't it? Never being anybody and get anything. And, and um, you know, it's a good teaching for sure, but uh, it's only half the story. And it can lend itself to the idea that, you know, somehow this whole process is about almost like diminishing yourself, becoming less. So I want to read you a, um, an article, a section of an article written by a woman, wonderful woman who was a Buddhist scholar, Pali scholar, wrote some really groundbreaking works on the Pali suttas, and now is a um, meditation teacher and teaches uh, breath meditation and stuff. So she wrote this. Her name is Joy Manet. At a recent conference whose theme was The Psychology of Awakening, Buddhism, Science, and Psychotherapy, many of the participants expressed their confusion regarding how the Buddha could function in the world without a self. Because they were Buddhists, they were trying to follow the teaching and to achieve or to imitate what they imagined this form of functioning could be. I thought they had missed the point. What the texts show is the character of the Buddha is someone with a very advanced self-concept. His self-esteem is perfect. He has gone beyond doubt. He knows and he is confident in his knowledge. He expresses himself with conviction. When the Buddha talks of himself in the first person, he does so with clarity. He has a strong sense of identity and he knows very well who he is. He gives accounts of his life experiences in the first person. He gives accounts of his spiritual capacities in the first person. For example, he announces and proclaims that he is a Buddha and he says what a Buddha is. He gives first-person accounts of the capacities required of him by society. For example, he insists he is a competent debater. He discusses at ease and in full equality with kings and other notables. He defends himself and his teachings against unjust accusations and false representations. It is clear that the Buddha's self as this concept is understood in contemporary psychology and psychotherapy, namely a clear sense of identity, the ability to function competently and realistically in the world, and to have a standard of ethics, to achieve one's goals, to interact with people, to make good choices, and so forth, was fully functional and remarkably well-developed, as one would expect. Neither psychotherapy nor meditation is possible unless the sense of identity or ego is mature and well-grounded. Otherwise, there is nothing to change and nothing to go beyond. So for some ways people understand Buddhist practice, this is kind of a different perspective. And the perspective is one not of becoming diminished through Buddhist practice, but rather becoming enhanced becoming bigger almost, or, you know. 
we grow in confidence and presence, we grow in conviction and knowledge we know. In some ways we become bigger, not smaller by doing this practice. And one way of understanding this process of seeing clearly, becoming disillusioned, disenchanted, and the fading away of our clinging to things, is that what we're, what we're becoming disillusioned with is those forces within us that diminish us, that make us less. We're freeing ourselves so that we can breathe easily, we can stand up tall, we can be here fully. And there's so many ways in which we diminish ourselves. We diminish ourselves with all kinds of beliefs about who we are and who we aren't. We diminish ourselves by our things we hold on to tightly. We diminish ourselves in our relationship to our emotional lives, to our thoughts we have. We diminish ourselves in how we see ourselves in relation to other people. And one of the remarkable things I think about something like meditation practice, <clears throat> over time, it's possible to begin, begin to get a sense of what that diminishing looks like, what it feels like. You can be sitting after, you know, some weeks, quiet and peaceful, and it feels, you know, maybe, maybe it doesn't feel great to sit here, um, but so much has been let go of. And then um, suddenly something happens, and you react in a certain way, you think of a certain way, and you can feel you get contracted or tight or agitated, and, and your world gets narrower and smaller as you get caught up. We become diminished in a certain way by the contraction. So what do we get contracted by? What diminishes us? Do we, understand, do we really feel and sense? And that's part of the opportunity with being on retreat or with any kind of meditation, not even on retreat, just at home, is we start seeing a contrast <clears throat> between some modicum of ease, some modicum of being relaxed, some modicum of being present and open in an undefended way, in an unapologetic, un, no, no need to apologize for ourselves, we're just here. And then, as we begin our lives or whatever, we start noticing, if we pay attention, notice we clamp up, we tighten up, we resist, we get agitated, we speed up. We're ahead of ourselves as we do things. You know, one of the great places to notice where you are is when you're walking to lunch. Sometimes people, the first time I was in a, one of the first Vipassana retreats I had, was sitting, was sitting on in Thailand. The teacher said, stay in your body. And when I noticed that when I went to lunch, I was ahead of my body like a foot ahead of me, because I was like, I wanted the food. So this process of seeing, 
disillusionment, the fading away, is not meant to be a process that diminishes us or makes us less. Only we're only diminishing, what we're making diminishing and lessening is the false ideas of self, the contracted sense of self, the, the ways in which we try to accomplish our, our life and get what we want, then actually in fact diminish us. Those diminish even further, those fade away. Someone in an interview today had, <clears throat> had a great analogy for this process here. Sometimes our, uh, she said that, you know, she, I guess, I think she said her life, sometimes she feels, she feels like she's kind of like a, an iceberg. And uh, one approach to, you know, an iceberg is to bring your pick and break it up. Your icebreaker comes along your boat and breaks it. And, um, you know, it's kind of interesting, the, the sense of self being frozen Sometimes it feels that way, locked in. But the problem when you come with the icebreaker to break the iceberg, just end up with a lot small pieces of ice, and they're all sharp, shards, and probably cut yourself on it. The brute force way of liberation doesn't work so well. But if you bring that iceberg into the sun, bring it down to the tropics, it begins to melt. And that melting process is much more peaceful. And it doesn't, it doesn't end up with sharp edges, but smooth edges. It gets smoother and smoother, even before it disappears. So we sit here, and part of, the, part of what we do here sometimes is we allow ourselves to thaw. We allow to, things to, you know, we're nourished. Hopefully, we can, from time to time, we feel nourished here. I'm struck, you know, by this remarkable field of goodness that we're living in this month. It's amazing how much goodness is here. You know, it's, uh, it's rare to have this kind of so much goodness. And I know sometimes it's hard to notice it because we have our issues going on, but it's remarkable. And from time to time, I hope that you get nourished by the goodness that's here you're in and the warmth of this. And in that nourishment and warmth, I hope that if there is anything frozen in you, that it begins to thaw, to melt. This fading process, the viraga, can also melting away. So what are some of the things that we have overrated, that we've overinvested in, that we have illusions about? What are some of the things we can be disillusioned about? One of the first things that I started to get disillusioned with when I was beginning my Buddhist practice was how much I tried to um, present myself to people in a certain way so that they would see me a certain way. And I could see, it was, I could, after a while I got seeing how much I was, effort I was putting in to be seen and 
by people and creating, a, saying the right things, dressing the right way, doing the right thing, and trying to present myself in a certain way. And uh, it became very painful when I started hanging around other Buddhists, practitioners, much more mature than me. And because um, my friends, they played along with it. But my Buddhist <laughs> elders, they just, they weren't going to buy into it. And I felt like I was kind of like a sore thumb sticking out or something because like, like, no one was playing my game. So I was like kind of painfully aware of what I was doing. So I became disillusioned. I kind of saw what I did. And slowly, slowly I began to give that up. It was not easy because it was probably based on fear. So the fear had to relax. And then for a while, I remember in the monasteries and monastery, I was, became painfully aware of how much I wanted people to like me. And I did a lot of social gymnastics to try to make that happen. And um, the wisdom that I, the way I got disillusioned from it was not through wisdom, like seeing through it, but rather being exhausted by the suffering of it. I just couldn't, I couldn't make the effort. It was like too much, too difficult. I couldn't keep it up. It's too painful. So that, that was disillusioned. With, and now, you know, it's, it's, uh, life is a lot easier if you, don't, if you don't need to have people like you. It's a great thing. I recommend it. It'd be nice if they liked you, but give up the need. And then there's, you know, believing in the value of praise, believing in the value of blame. So we get, but then you can get disillusioned with, uh, you know, the, or you can see that praise and blame is way overrated. And so we stop investing so much into what can be because we're concerned in it and that begins to fade away. People can praise you, they can blame you. It's okay. It doesn't, you know, pierce our heart or something inside. It's a great verse in the Dhammapada where the Buddha says, they'll criticize you if you talk too much. This is good for Dharma teachers. They'll criticize you if you talk too much. They'll criticize you if you talk too little. They'll criticize you if you talk just the right amount. <laughs> no one in this world is free of criticism. When I read that, that freed me a little bit. Oh, that's the, how that world works. Then I can't really be so, you know, I can't engineer the world, you know, so, so there's never any criticism that comes along with being in the world. So I guess I can, I can lighten up a little bit around, around this blame thing, criticism thing. I'm not going to get it right. For everyone. And then people are, um, some people are addicted to comfort. How they see their world is through the filter of comfort or pleasure. So they're always kind of engineering and figuring out the world, setting things up so they can be comfortable. And there's sometimes deep-seated beliefs that if I'm not comfortable, something is fundamentally flawed with the world or with me. 
And so there's so but to cut through the illusion of the importance of comfort is very important. And as I'm very fond of saying, if you're only free when you're comfortable, you're not really free. So to always be moving after comfort and avoiding discomfort, you might be missing your chance for freedom. And oddly enough, this is the way it sounds, if you're pursuing comfort and avoiding discomfort all the time, it actually diminishes you. There's a way of becoming big. One of the images I have for mindfulness practice, concentration practice both, is, um, I'll give you two similar images. One is that of a bow of a boat cutting through the water. You know where you're going, you set your course, and the, and the water just, the, the boat, boat just cuts through the water, and all the water just washes to the side of the boat and washes back and is left behind. So you set your course, and a lot of the stuff that comes up in your mind, a lot of the concerns, a lot of stuff, you know, it's, it doesn't need to be picked up and engaged in. It doesn't need to be rejected either. You don't have to be involved in it. Just hold the course and let it just wash right off the sides of the boat. Or the other image that I like, similar is, imagine that mindfulness is, like the mindfulness of breathing, staying with the breath, is like an umbrella. And everything else is just rain. It just washes off the side. So, you know, uh, sometimes the tremendous importance we give experiences, then things don't just wash off. One of the ways in retreat, you know, is to be overly enthralled with your own meditation experience. This, you know, I'm supposed to have a great experience, I'm, ha I'm having a great experience, it's all this joy and bliss, and great things are happening, I'm on, the, I'm on the brink of becoming free of I, it's great, I'm going to try harder, and I can't wait to tell my teachers because I'm going to be free. And, um, and so there's a lot of, you know, illusions there about I and me and pride and things. And then someone kind of stomps into the hall late and they've been out, you know, running a marathon so it takes about 10 minutes for the breath to calm down and they're huffing and puffing and, you know, it's a wonderful experience. And so the way we're having the illusion we're living under is the illusion of my experience. That person is disturbing my experience. I was on the brink of enlightenment and now I'm not. And the, So, you know, so to see things as they are is to see that when the person came in, they say, oh, to so realize, oh, I'm really attached to this experience. I'm, I'm investing a lot of importance in this. And now I'm really, now this self-righteousness and anger is coming up because um, I feel afraid that what was so important for me is going to be lost forever. And then we get angry at the person and, you know, the whole universe, the whole kind of soap opera builds up. And it's a remarkable thing, which people in retreat sometimes discover when the person does it repeatedly, which happened to me in three-month retreat at IMS, that literally what happened, this guy sat next to me, and it seemed like for half the retreat, he'd always come to every sitting late, and it took him about 10 minutes to stop breathing heavily. The way he entered the hall was like a lumberjack. 
And then at some point, in the middle of a heavy breathing, um, he had to take off his Velcro jacket. <laughs> so I had a lot of illusions to work through, a lot of attachments to work through. And at some point, I, he would come in and uh, it was just sound. And my mind didn't have to do anything about it. It didn't disturb me, it didn't rattle me, it, nothing happened, just sound. It had the same value in my mind, my breathing did. Breathing in, breathing out, huffing, puffing. <laughs> my breath, his breath. We have uh, a lot of illusions about our needs, illusions about security, illusions about relationships, illusions about safety. All things which are fine in and of themselves, but it's so easy to have illusions and over-invest in them, overrate them, their importance and their necessity and, and be diminished as a process. And we have a chance to, you know, to be enhanced, to grow by not being limited by these things. By beginning having to fade away the fear we have, fade away the drive and desires we have for safety and security and relationships and many things. It's a fine thing to have when it enhances us, but if it diminishes us, you know, it's, maybe it's not necessary. So we begin to thaw, we begin to relax. Or at least we begin to question what's going on. One of the important things that I discovered through this practice that we're doing here is that that which is most that which is most valuable, most essential, most the place of greatest freedom within cannot be touched by anything. There's nothing that can harm it. So if that's the core, the center, that begins to shift a little bit the whole question of safety. Where's safety? What do I need? What conditions do I have to set in place? begins to loosen up and we become a little bit more difficult a little bit difficult to to have some of the situations of the world harm us psychologically when we know inside that there's something there, a resource, a refuge, a support. It's part of this inner light, the warmth, the tropics that melts the ice. A common <clears throat> enchantment for meditators is the value of experience, chasing experiences. And experiences of, you know, of warmth and enhancement and growth and settledness is, are important for this thawing process and relaxing process, but it also can be overrated, that also. And the real way that the Buddhism teaches, the real way to really become enhanced really kind of become present unapologetically in this world and confident and here is to let go of clinging 
And there's this great emphasis in this early Buddhist tradition that we're teaching from to not make any experience ultimate. To only find that ultimate experience. And not even nirvana is defined in any kind of way where it's possible to take it as a thing that's ultimate. It's almost completely always defined by the process of release. It's, it's a process, it's a, and actually many times in the Buddhist texts in English, suttas, which we read, you know, Bhikkhu Bodhi's translations, they, people use the word nibbana, nirvana, which is, a, which is a noun, but the actual Pali is a, a verb to be nirvanized. It's an activity, and it's the activity of releasing, being released. So we don't attain nirvana, we experience or we, we have release. There's release that happens. And this release, this letting go, over and over, that's the kind of thing. And it's a great thing, it's a great process. So one of the things that, um, having gone through this process, this practice, one of the results for me, consequences for me, is that I now <clears throat> have a very uh, welcoming attitude about dying. I don't know, I, I, don't, I know enough to know, I won't know what my dying is going to be like, it might be miserable. But um, my, I have a welcoming attitude towards it. I'm not looking forward to it like I want it or anything. But, um, but I'm wel- it's a welcome, it's like a nice, I have a nice relationship with the idea of dying because of how I've met myself and how I've met reality here on these retreats. To sit here and really be present for reality, to really be fully in, this mo- in the present moment, to meet this moment as if, as if it's your last moment perhaps, but to meet this moment is, and really get to the bottom and really meet it in a full way. And then to have this thinning process, this viraga, fading process, and to have it, watch it all the way to the end, and to see how welcoming that is, how wonderful that is. It's like the best. You know, it's, that's my reference point for dying. Wow, this, that's going to be great if I get to die slow enough. So the Buddha um, <clears throat> talked about the path of practice as a gradual path. And I think it's a very mature thing to approach your inner growth and development and path to liberation as a slow process. Take your time. kind of like developmental process, like children grow up developmentally over 16, 18, 20, 40 years. It, it, you know, it, it, it happens. And, uh, but that developmental growth doesn't stop. And that's been practice like this, is to allow the natural development growth continue, become even more mature. It's like growing up a second time. But it's a slow process, it takes time. So I think it's very, very wise to not be in a hurry. And the Buddha likened this process of walking the path sometimes 
as um, having a big, stout, strong rope, big rope. And then slowly over the years, slowly the rope begins to wear away. We let go of wanting people to like us. We let go of wanting to, um, you know, have a big house and mansion, fast cars or, you know, all these things and toys and the latest gadgets. We let go of, of our fear. We release our pain and wounds and suffering that we have. We let go of all the ways which we get diminished. Slowly, slowly, we see it. We see it what, the, what it is. We see how we've overrated it. We get disillusioned. Begin to let go, maybe. Let go, it slowly lets go of itself. And the rope gets thinner. At some point, we come like, it gets thinner. At some point, it starts, especially like on retreat and meditation, we really start letting go of the agitation of the mind and the busyness of the mind and the chasing after things that the mind does. And so as, as the mind quiets down, the rope thins more and more. And like I've noticed we're thinking in meditation, um, so occasionally you can, thinking just stops, it's kind of nice. But I think what happens more often is that our thinking gets uh, weaker and weaker, thinner and thinner. And slowly, as we do this practice, slowly, slowly, uh, there's not much power in the thinking anymore. We're not so identified with it or interested in it or caught in it. And the, the thinking just becomes more wispy and thinner, thinner. And you know, it becomes thin enough, then finally you realize that thoughts are the most insubstantial thing in the world. They have no weight, they have no color, no shape. And we treat them as the most important thing in the world. But there's no, almost nothing there. Try to touch a thought and it doesn't get very far. So thoughts begin to thin as we, the power of identification with them begins to go away. And as it, the power of thinking diminishes and the thinking becomes softer and wispier and, and we let go of the agitation and we're more present, it tends to become a, a more pleasant experience. It tends, to, it tends to come with more sense of well-being. Because most, sen- most ways of fe- feeling the opposite of well-being, most of the time, unless there's physical injury or illness or something, most ways uh, arise because of the activities of our mind. So, you know, if, if uh, a simple example would be boredom. Nothing in the world is inherently boring except for the activity of the mind that makes it so. And because it's an activity of the mind, it's optional. It doesn't have to be there. We don't have to interpret or see through the vantage point, those eyes of boredom. But it's so powerful that the illusion, the investment we have in boredom sometimes, we think the situation is boring. But to turn back and see, no, it's what my mind is doing. I don't have to do it. And have that drop away and a situation that was boring, no, it just, it just is. No longer boring, just is. So a lot of the ways in which we feel the opposite of well-being belongs, comes out of the activities of our mind. Not necessarily intentional. We can't necessarily stop it by, by will. 
but we can begin to it can begin to soften and relax, and we can be okay with it. We can bow to it. We can respect it. It's okay. And then, um, and so as we settle and become thinner and quieter, it tends to be more sense of well-being. And then you feel that well-being. You feel it's actually nice. I think it's nice to let go. A thought comes up about lunch. You're in the middle of sitting quietly and peacefully, and you start thinking about lunch. And you realize, wait a minute, to think about lunch, you're going to feel the difference. Oh, when you get involved in lunch thoughts, you feel how it diminishes you. It feels how you lose touch with some sense of well-being because you kind of get pulled into that world of thoughts and ideas. And if you're quiet enough, you can see that movement and say, say no. It's not interesting. You're no longer uh, caught in, you're no longer enchanted by this, your thoughts, no longer so pulled into that world. No, thank you. And you stay in the peaceful place or quieter place because it's more pleasant, it's more wonderful, it's, you're more enhanced, you're bigger, you're something. Quieting down. And then there's all these notions of self that operate and they fall away slowly. You know, there's three kinds of conceit. There's a conceit that you're better than others. There's a conceit that you're less than others. And then there's this wonderful conceit that you're equal to others. And that leaves the question, what's left? And what's left in this thinning process, letting go process, disillusionment process, is simply don't play the comparative game. You don't have to compare yourself to others any kind of way, even as equals. That's just a game, an activity of the mind. It's fine to see, say that you're equal to others, but you don't have to even do that. And you can see that activity in the mind. You don't have to, so conceit falls away. And it gets more pleasant, more nice, more beautiful. I'm sitting here with all of you, and there's so much beautiful clarity and space above your heads. You look up around, it's so nice. There's a lot here. So this rope gets thinner and thinner. And you kind of feel that it's just nice, it just feels good to let go of these things. It's like good not to think so much, like not good not to be so tight and caught. It's good just to be, just to be. And this is where John's teaching was so good. Nowhere to go, nothing to be, nothing to experience. No hope. <laughs> because that's just more activity of the mind. It's more enchantment, illusions, and overratedness. And it's just, you know, and it just, just you feel, it's not just not worth it. It's like, why pick it up? Why get involved in that when it's just so much nicer not to? And the rope gets thinner and thinner and thinner how nice it is not to have any activity in the mind, no doing, thinner, thinner. Finally, just a thin, thin filament that's left. And the process has been so nice, so wonderful all the way, that certainly it's even better to have the filament break, the rope break. Isn't that, isn't that the best? And that idea of the, the, you know, the filament finally breaking 
is similar to when the mind lets go of itself. Or when the bottom just simply drops out the way. Or the heart is at home in itself. The heart is no longer searching and looking and wanting anything. The heart's really finally come at home to itself. The heart at home in itself and awareness has let go of itself. In the beginning of the retreat, Philip talked about sitting with dignity and nobility. It's a great starting place to respect ourselves, bow to ourselves, whatever it is. Sit with dignity and nobility. And in that dignity, begin this process of letting everything that diminishes us, everything that's not needed, everything which limits us, let it fade away, let it melt away. And if you can let go of it faster, please do. There's so little that you need to be happy. So little you need to be free. So my dear Buddhas, let's finish by collecting ourselves again in a dignified posture and sitting quietly for a little bit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.